All right, James 4 is where we're at today. Comes after Hebrews. <clears throat> Encourage you to look at God's Word. These are the words of the living God. And James 4 starts with a question. It's really helping us to understand where does conflict in the church come from? Oh, imagine that. Conflict in the church. Is that really true? Is, I mean, is there such a thing? Conflict in the church? <laughs> so James is, uh, well, he's, he doesn't have his head stuck in the sand. He knows there is such a thing as conflict in the church. And he's asking us here, what causes quarrels and fights? What causes quarrels and fights? Well, verse 1 there asks that question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? By the way, quarrels there is relating to general prolonged and serious disputing or combat even. It's often, uh, sometimes it's even translated war. Imagine that, war in the church. The other word there, fights, fights is referring to specific fights or battles. And, And both of those terms there are used here metaphorically. It's talking of a a violent personal relationship, and sadly, can even, according to verse 2, end in murder. Can even end in murder. And and, uh, the other thing I wanted you to notice here, the phrase, among you, there is indicating that those combative relationships were between members of the churches to whom James wrote. And some of those members obviously were not saved. Uh, which I'll try to show you here in a moment. Uh, they, they were not saved. And as Jesus said, you, you, you can judge them by their fruit. And because they were enemies of God, it says here, they were also enemies of each other and, and enemies of true believers in the churches. By the way, conflict within the church is not God's will. God doesn't want His children fighting, just like us parents don't desire our children to fight. And so... Jesus says in John 13, he says this, that a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Notice it's a new commandment I give you, that you fight and quarrel amongst each other. No, he didn't say that. No, you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, let's see what James has to say about this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He says in verse 1, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Verse 2, look at this. He says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. 
but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? We'll stop there for today. So here's the main idea from this paragraph, that Christians should reject worldliness and humbly submit to God. So there's two aspects there, so the positive and the negative, right? God, What does God want you to do? He wants you to reject the worldliness, which, which we see portrayed here. But that's only going to happen if you humbly submit to God. You say, well, what is worldliness? Well, if you look at verse 4, verse 4 is helpful here. Kind of a companion passage to this is 1 John 2. So worldliness is friendship with the world. Interestingly enough, in the Greek, it is it is philos of the cosmos. <laughs> I love how the, kind of, it's kind of poetic there, isn't it? Philos of the cosmos. You've heard that Greek word phileo, a, a brotherly love. Well, that's that's your Greek word there for friendship. The world is the cosmos. It's In other words, what God is saying to us, it's this unhealthy love for a system of beliefs, values, and philosophies that are opposed to God. There are all, all these things in our world that are opposed to God is the, is the cosmos that... James is talking about. And James gives us a description of worldliness here. And the first thing he says here is that the source of worldliness is selfish desire. The, the source of the worldliness is coming from our selfish desire right there in verse 1. Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. And so James states that the cause of the conflicts is your passions. That's an interesting word, because passions is actually translated from the Greek word uh, hedonon, uh, from which we get uh, English words like hedonist and hedonism. Uh, They're derived from this Greek word here. Now, in the New Testament, by the way, that word is always used negatively. It's, It's always used in an ungodly sense. So you say, well, what is hedonism? Well, hedonism is that uncontrolled uh, personal desire to fulfill every passion and whim that promises sensual satisfaction and enjoyment. In other words, hedonism is the belief that pleasure is the chief good in life. It it is the ultimate thing in life. (laughs) Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, oh, oh, great. So does that mean I can't have fun? No. 
Uh, is God saying to Christians here that, uh, that, that, that to be passionate about something uh, is, is a sin? Uh, is it saying that I can't have pleasure? Is that what God's telling me here? And the answer is no, by the way. No. It is okay for you to go uh, enjoy roasting marshmallows on a fire. I'm just going to tell you some fun things. I think these are, these are things that bring great pleasure to me. Um, if the shoe fits, then wear it. If not, come up with something else, okay? It, it's, it's okay if you want to go on a torture walk up the Hakamaratas, right? If you want to climb 1,300 stairs and, and you want all your sweat, you know, to be coming out of you. I love that sign on the Hawks, right? You know, sweat's just your fat crying, right? It's, if, if that's what you want to do, then knock yourself out. Uh, it, you know, for me, my choice... Um, you know, well, this is not my choice. If you want to go on a bouncy ride on a horse, and you know, you know, if you go for it, it's okay if that brings you pleasure. Uh, for me, I'd rather ride the ATV. You know, the ATV doesn't have a mind of its own. Uh, if you wanna, if you wanna read a good book, that's God says that's okay. If you wanna go to a music concert and listen to beautiful music, God says that's okay. You see, the Christian life is not, a, is not a life of negation. Some people think, well, it's all about thou shalt not. Uh, no. <laughs> the Christian life is actually about enjoyment. I'm getting really philosophical here, but, but I'll, I'll prove this from Scripture in a moment. See, Christians ought to be the biggest pleasure seekers in the universe. Have you ever thought about that? You ought to be the biggest pleasure seeker in the universe. You say, well, how is that? How, how, how is that? Well, the answer is, you must understand that God is the author of all pleasure. When God made everything, he said it was very good. It was very good, originally. And so the Psalms are very helpful here. Look, look what the Psalms say. Psalm 37, verse 4 says, have no pleasure, right? Is that what it says? You know, be really boring. Don't do anything. No, he doesn't say that. God wants you to delight yourself, but it has to be the right place, the right person. It's delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desire of your heart. Psalm 16.11 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. God wants you to understand true Happiness and delight and joy. But you've got to look for it in the right place. <laughs> so he goes on with his description of worldliness, and he tells us the outcome of worldliness is not good. In fact, it's disappointment. The outcome is disappointment. Because verse 2 says, You desire, and you do not have, so you murder. Here's reality, friends. Unless we repent, desire is eventually going to lead you to sinful actions. Let me give you an example. Do you remember what King David's desire did to him? He saw a beautiful woman and he wanted to have sexual relations with her. So he brought her to the palace, right? Had sexual relations with Bathsheba. Did it satisfy? No. No. So what did he do? Well, he did exactly what verse 2 says. 
He murdered Bathsheba's husband. He murdered Bathsheba's husband. Well, did that fulfill his heart's desire? No. (laughs) No, never would. And it couldn't. He broke his fellowship with God, and it nearly destroyed him. Just read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. I like what um, one, one person says here. John McMurray said this, The best cure for hedonism is an attempt to practice it. Did you get that? The best cure for hedonism is an attempt to practice it. Because your desire will leave you unfulfilled. (laughs) Never will fulfill you. Never will. So the outcome of worldliness is disappointment. But number three, the reason for worldliness is self-centeredness. It's self-centeredness. It's all about you. See, notice... Notice how James puts it. You covet, and you cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. You, you see, see, it's all about you. It's it's self-centeredness. Let me illustrate it this way. I, I uh, I, I like Shakespeare, even though he's getting canceled too. But uh, in, in one of Shakespeare's plays called Othello, he, he said this. He said, and he talks about the green-eyed monster that uh, James is talking about here. He says, Oh, beware, my lord, of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. You ever, you ever seen, seen or read that? Those words are from Shakespeare's Othello, and, and it really gives a, an interesting background for some of the... We get a lot of stuff from Shakespeare, and maybe you've heard that phrase. Maybe you've used the phrase, green with envy. Green with envy. You ever heard that phrase? Well, it comes from Shakespeare, and it comes from Othello. And it's interesting, the ancient Greeks thought that feelings of envy and its sister sin jealousy caused this overproduction of bile that would turn a person this putrid green color. You ever seen someone turn green? Well, that's what the ancient Greeks thought. The idea of being sick with jealousy comes from that deep, nauseous feeling you you get when you're jealous or envious. And so, God's blaming uncontrolled envy for all kinds of problems here when when he says there in verse 2 that you are envious and and so you can't obtain, so what do you do? You fight and you quarrel. That's where it comes from. So beware of the green-eyed monster, as uh, Shakespeare puts it. So what what is this jealousy? What is envy? Let Let me explain this here. Some people think they're the same thing. So how do they differ? How does envy and jealousy differ? Well, envy is a painful and resentful awareness of an advantage that is enjoyed by someone else. And and it's accompanied by this strong desire where you want to possess the same advantage as that person. You you like what you see going on with them, and you want the same. right? Envy sheepishly wants to have what somebody else possesses. Whereas jealousy is exclusively wanting to possess what you already have. 
see the difference? So envy is what you don't have. Jealousy is what you already have. So they're, they're kind of sisters in a way. So jealousy is coarse. It's cruel. Envy is kind of sneaky and subtle. Jealousy clutches and it smothers what it gets, whereas envy is forever reaching out and it's, it's just pondering. It's saying sinister things. They're, they're not the same. So envy finds socially acceptable ways of expressing personal resentment. Uh, one of the favorite methods this, this expresses itself here, and you can see this worked out uh, in our world today, was one of the favorite methods is what, what, what some call the, the but approach, where, where you insert the word but into your sentence. So uh, when I talk of, of someone I, I envy, I, I might say something like this, okay? Here, here's how it expresses itself. You might say, well, hey, you know, that person's an excellent salesman, but they're not very sincere. Right? You see how you've inserted the word but. Uh, or you might say, uh, oh, yeah, she's got a, she's an amazing mind, but a, a very dull teacher. Or, you know, that man's an outstanding surgeon, but they charge you an arm and a leg. Right? Right? Do, do you see how the word but is inserted in there? It's a little takedown, if you will. And so envy finds acceptable ways of expressing the personal resentment. Another favorite way of expressing envy is we, uh, these are things I've learned from other people where we, we, we take the reverse approach. Somebody does a good job and then you, you, you cast a shadow uh, over that person, you're, you're questioning their motives. So beware of this, because J- James is, is telling us here where the fights and the quarrels are coming from, from our envying, our, our jealousy. And so an individual might uh, be a, a truly uh, generous, for example, uh, or they might, uh, buy, you know, they, 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 let's just say they're generous, okay? And we, we might say, well, he's obviously trying to impress me. Right? So you're questioning the motive, even though that person was generous to you. Instead of just saying thank you, you know, you know you're questioning them. Or uh, somebody might, uh, heaven forbid, somebody in the church buys a new car, and uh, and then you know we're questioning the motives. There might be somebody who you, you know might say, well. You know, I wonder, uh, people people are horrible. You know, you see, where do these fights and quarrels in the church come from? Well, you know, somebody in the church buys a new car, and then somebody else says, well, I wonder how many missionaries we could have supported. There's the unfavorable comparison approach that is equally cynical, by the way. This is where... Uh, you know, for example, let's say somebody does something in church. You know, for example, uh, uh, let's say somebody is is a beautiful singer, for example, and they sing a beautiful song in church. It's 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 blessed a lot of people, and then uh, somebody says, "Well, yeah, he you know he was okay, he was okay, but uh, you you should have heard so and so sing that same song." Or you know, if you think my neighbor has a really nice lawn, 
you should see the other guy down the street. He's even better, right? You know, there, there's always this one up, right? It's, you know, or you say, uh, you know, man, that person has a nice car. It's okay, but you know, Consumer Magazine only gave it an average rating, right? It's always trying to tear down. So it's a curious fact here that envy is attention often found amongst professionals. By the way, so if you're in that if you're in that category, beware. You know, these are the gifted, the highly competent people. They're the, uh, you know, it could be the doctors, the singers, the artists, the lawyers, entrepreneurs, authors, entertainers, even preachers. We we can we can even fight and quarrel amongst ourselves. Yes. Uh, it could be athletes, politicians. Isn't it strange? That could be the case. Capable folks find it nearly impossible to applaud somebody else in their field. <laughs> so Shakespeare, under he understood just how powerful envy and jealousy is. Envy has big fangs, and they can be hidden like in a snake. You ever seen snakes' fangs? They, they can be hidden, but boy, watch out when, when the snake is, is ready to bite, the fangs come out, and they can be deadly. So it doesn't matter how cultured, dignified it may appear, this, this green-eyed monster here that Shakespeare is talking about can be deadly. It can shred entire congregations. It can be very destructive to communities. I want you to see how this works itself out. Let me give you some biblical examples, okay? Because James is saying, be, be careful. You desire, you do not have, so you murder. You, you covet, you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Beware. See, envy sold Joseph into slavery. Read, read the end of Genesis. It, it drove David into exile from King Saul. It threw Daniel into the lion's den. It put Jesus Christ on the cross. And it nearly split the church at Corinth, just to name a few examples. But look what Paul's doing here. He's telling us envy is is one of those prevailing traits in in our sinful humanity. It it, it hangs around. It, It keeps coming back and biting. It hangs around with other things like Profanity, suspicion, and conceit, just to name a few. So let me ask you, friends, are you struggling with envy? Says Jerry Bridges says, it's one of those respectable sins. It's a respectable sin. We don't talk about it much, if at all. So ask yourself this, friends. When somebody at work gets a commendation or a promotion, for, for which you were eligible as well, how do you respond to that when your workmate gets the promotion and you don't? How about when somebody at church gets recognition for some accomplishment? What is your reaction? What's your reaction? Do you share the news with a but attached to that? You know, you know I'm thankful for that, but... Uh, or do you try to discern wrong motives that might be driving the recognition? Or do you try to put it into perspective by comparison? Well, if you're, if you're doing that, beware, friends. 
as Shakespeare says, you could be bitten by that green-eyed monster. So what's the cure, you say? The cure is contentment. It's contentment. Feeling comfortable and secure with who you are and where you are. See, not having to be better or go further or own more or, hey, I have to prove to the world, I have to reach the top. You don't have to do that. Contentment means you're surrendering your frustrated hopes, you're surrendering those missed goals, but you're surrendering those to God. That's what contentment does. That's what contentment does. See, having some struggles with envy is is often our problem, and it causes lots of problems, as you can see here. See, eating your heart out because somebody's a, a step or two ahead of you in, in the race and, and is, is, is somehow you feel like they're getting ahead of you and, and they're succeeding and it's frustrating to you is, uh, is not contentment. Are you responsible? Yes. But God gives us some, uh, some rebuke here for this way of thinking. He gives us a rebuke for this kind of an attitude. He gives a rebuke for worldliness in these next few verses. Let's quickly look at verses 4 through 6. We see here that friendship with the world is spiritual adultery. God calls it spiritual adultery. Adultery is the sin of violating the marriage covenant by having intimacy with someone who is not your spouse. And so God takes that and compares it to, to us spiritually. And so the same can actually be said of those who are claiming to be Christians. And then we attach uh, ourselves to the church, but have no saving relationship to God. We don't love God. We don't love His Word. God says you're guilty of spiritual adultery. So my friend, you don't want to be in this situation, because look what verse 4 says. Verse 4 says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Do you want to be God's enemy? The answer is no. In case you didn't know that, the answer is no. We do not want to be God's enemy, but you will put yourself in that situation if you make yourself a friend of the world. Notice it's you make yourself a friend of the world. You're putting yourself in that situation. So beware. Friendship with the world is spiritual adultery. Number two, friendship with the world is, is actually disregard for Scripture. It's disregard for Scripture. Now this, i got to tell you, this is one of those very difficult verses to interpret. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, some of you are using a Bible translation that capitalized the word spirit. In the original language, it's not capitalized. Um, and the, the, the quotation marks are around a part of Scripture that's not in Scripture. So you won't actually find a verse that says what it says right there. I tried. It doesn't exist. And so this is at least two reasons why this has been very difficult for interpreters. You could read five different commentators and get ten different opinions. It's, it's just one of those things. It's, it's really confusing. But whatever you, however you interpret this, God seems to be saying that 
His enemies reflect hostility here by not trusting and obeying His Word. They're refusing to acknowledge their separation from God. That we do know. So regardless of what a person may claim, it is impossible to hold Scripture in in a genuine high regard as it should be, as, as God's Word, and yet not trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. <laughs> Those two are not compatible. You're not holding God's Word as high as it should be. And so God says that here, friendship with the world is actually showing disregard for Scripture. There's a third one here. He says that friendship with the world is actually pride. It's pride. And here, James is actually quoting from Proverbs chapter 3, and and by the way, Peter quotes from Proverbs 3 as well, using the same verse when he says that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In other words, if a person's consumed with this worldly lust, these desires, ambitions, pride, and love, he has no claim on this greater grace, as, as God calls it here, this greater grace. In fact, God opposes, he says. Now, God opposes, that's an interesting word, because opposes was used as a military term here, depicting a full army that is ready for battle. In other words, God's saying, hey, I am ready for battle. I'm in my full battle array against the proud, because pride's the basic sin, it seems, from which all other sins flow out of. Right? Read... Read Isaiah 14. Read Ezekiel 28. It's what was the sin of Lucifer, which made him become Satan. It's the sin of Adam and Eve, our father and mother. They wanted to be like God as well. They wanted to be in control. They were proud. So here you have God. He's in full battle array against the proud. Not a good place to be, right? Now, why does God oppose the proud? The answer is, by the way, God is good. God's opposed to the proud because He's good. See, He knows what's best for you. For you to be proud and opposing Him is not in your best interest. So, my friend, if you need help, well, this good God gives us the cure here. He gives us the cure, and and, and you actually have a a series of 11 commands. In the Greek, they're all imperatives in this next part here. So let's look at the cure from worldliness. The cure from worldliness is basically Christians should humbly submit to God in in response to His friendship. God wants to be your friend. He loves you. The question is, do you love Him? So if you're struggling here, the first thing he says, the cure from worldliness is submission. Submission. Right there at the beginning of verse 7, it says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Now that word submit is another military term, and it means to rank yourself under. You're to rank yourself under the one who is the supreme rank. So my friend, let me ask you, have you ranked yourself 
under God. Because that's who you're supposed to. Because notice it says, submit yourselves not to yourself or any government or anything else. It's submit yourselves to God. Have you done that? Are you doing that? That's something you should be continuing throughout your life. The second part of the cure is resistance. You are to resist. By the way, you're not going to be able to resist unless you're you're doing verse the first part of verse 7. It, uh, unless you're submitting yourselves to God, you, you have no hope of resisting the devil. He's not going to flee from you because you're so awesome. No, he's going to flee from you because God is awesome. You see the difference. But resistance is important here. See, to submit to your new Lord is is is, is part of this process of resisting your old Lord. Little L, Lord. By the way, resist means you, you're to stand against. You are to oppose the devil. There's no middle ground, by the way. There is no neutrality here. You can't sit on the fence on this one. And so to, to stand with the Lord is actually to stand against everything that is sinful and worldly. Are you doing that? You have to do this. Otherwise, there is no cure for worldliness. Number three, draw near in intimate fellowship and communion with the living God. That's the idea of verse 8, when, when it says you draw near to God, and then notice what will happen if you do that. He will draw near to you. So, by the way, seeking salvation is seeking God. Because, I forget who said it, somebody, I learned this a long time ago, that God is the gospel. <laughs> God literally is the gospel. He's the good news. He's your only hope. So it moves on here quickly. We, we see another command to stop doing evil. We must stop doing evil. When it says there in verse 8 to cleanse your hands. Now the origin of this idea was in the Jewish ceremonial laws. You read your Old Testament. You, you read about the priest before they would come before Yahweh to offer their sacrifices, whether it was the tabernacle or the temple, they would wash their hands in a basin or a labor. It, it is not in any person's power, even the power of a believer, to cleanse himself spiritually. You can cleanse your physical hands, but you cannot cleanse your heart. You can't do the inside. And that's why our gracious Lord promises that in 1 John 1, 9, that if you confess your sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He's able to do that. You can't. And the fact, by the way, that this command is specifically addressed to sinners here is further evidence that James is speaking to unbelievers. He's, he's, what he's doing here is he's actually calling the unbelievers to repentance and to this saving re relationship with God. And by the way, throughout the New Testament, that word sinners, did you know, is only used of unbelievers? You will never find the word sinners applied to a believer. When you become a child of God, you are called a saint. You're a saint. You're no longer a sinner. You say, well, wait a minute. Are you preaching the sinless perfection? No, I'm not. You're, you still sin. Of course you do. Just like me. But you're no longer a sinner. 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You, you're now a saint. You still sin, yes, until you're glorified. And I love that thought that I am no longer a sinner. My, my, my whole state and position in Christ has changed. But James Muzaman says, stop thinking evil. <laughs> he says, stop thinking evil when he, he says there in verse 8, purify your heart. Purify your heart. See, that's a Hebrew parallelism. And it's corresponding to that previous one when he says, cleanse your hands. And so the unbeliever not only is to turn from outward sin, but James says, even more important, you're to turn from the inner sin of your heart from which the outward sin is coming from. Does that make sense? It's like Jesus says in Matthew 15. It's out of the heart come evil thoughts. That's where the murders come from, the adulteries, the fornications, the thefts, the false witness, and the slanders. Out of your heart, he says. It's coming from within you. So stop thinking evil. And number six, feel remorse for your wickedness. By the way, you, 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 want, a, you want a good progression to salvation? Uh, th- this, this, is, this lines up really well with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Read Matthew chapter 5. Uh, There's a wonderful correspondence here. But you must feel remorse for your wickedness. Or as verse 9 says, be wretched. Now that has nothing to do, by the way, with the the stuff in your stomach coming out of you. Right? That that is, don't think that. The idea here is it's carrying this idea of you're being broken, you're feeling wretched um, because of your circumstances. In, In this case... It's that of being sinful. You're, you're lost. You're separated from God. That's a horrible circumstance to be in. You, you should be wretched. You should feel remorse. And then number seven, don't make a joke out of your wickedness. <laughs> don't make a joke out of it because it's not a joke. In fact, God says you're to mourn. It's a command. See, the contrite sinner is to mourn over his sin. And the idea, by the way, is that of deep grief and remorse. It's a complete despair that laments over sin. Certainly not a shallow thing. And if that's the case, then you're going to do number eight. You will weep. So in verse nine there, to weep is this outward manifestation of the misery and the sorrow that you're feeling. Uh, you know, the, the tears coming out of your eyeballs is, is showing what's going on inside you. It's exactly what Peter did, by the way. The apostle Peter, when he realized that he did exactly what Jesus told him he was going to do. Jesus says, you will deny me, Peter. And you remember what Peter says? Oh, no, not me, Lord. I would never do that to you. Oh, yeah. He did. Three times. Well, good on Peter. Because he mourns. He he wept. He wept. His sin deeply affected him. God says it should be the same for us. And then number nine, the ninth cure for worldliness here is there needs to be a seriousness about this. Notice it's the, the expression there, turned. Turned. It's an expression of the, the same basic truth but uh, in two different but parallel forms. See, James is, by the way, he's not condemning legitimate laughter or joy. It's okay to have legitimate laughter and joy. 
But what James is condemning here is this flippant, trivial, worldly, self-centered, sensual kind. That's what he's concerned about there. And then he ends with the, well, it's not really the end, but he, but he ends with a, the tenth command is humility. Humility is the starting point and the summary of salvation as far as the human response is concerned. See, you, you, can't, you can't come to Christ if you're proud. To be humble, by the way, means literally to make low. And it was the first of the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 when Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, you're humble. You, you, you come to Christ recognizing you're, you have empty hands. You have nothing to offer Christ except your sin. And He's not impressed with that. So you're literally made low. And here it means to make oneself low, by the way. And you don't make yourself low with, with self-put-downs. It's not, you know, saying you're an idiot. Oh, man, I've done, I do this to myself all the time. It's like, oh, you idiot. That's not how you make yourself humble. It's a genuine realization of complete unworthiness and lostness because of my sin. It's like the prophet Isaiah when he says, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Genuine humility on his part. Uh, another example of humility that comes to my mind is the prodigal son. He's a perfect example of humility. You remember the prodigal son? <laughs> in the beginning, he was rather proud, but eventually when he came to his senses in the far country, the Bible says, uh, here's, here's what he said to himself. He said, I will get up and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Read the story, Luke chapter 15. Great story. You remember the story, though, when he actually returns home and he expresses uh, his sincere contrition over his sin? The father actually said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf. Kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. My friends, that is a picture of the way in which God gives His greater grace, as verse 6 was talking about. It's, it's talking about those who come into the presence of God in repentance and humility. And what does God do? Notice the father received his son. In fact, he was longing and looking for his son the whole time. He, he sees him from afar. Great, he's returning. And he blesses him. It's the way God is. He will exult lavishly. <laughs> what a good example. But there's one more command here. The 11th command is, do not speak evil. Now this one's talking to Christians. Because you notice in verse 11, it says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. That's brothers and sisters in Christ. Fellow Christians are not to speak evil against each other. And you say, well, why? Well, let me give you, the scripture gives you two good reasons. 
minimum of two good reasons. Number one, by speaking evil against a fellow believer, you actually slander God's law, which, by the way, prohibits that type of action. So how does slandering or condemning others show that we judge the law? You say, I'm not judging the law. I would never do that. I mean, (laughs) I wouldn't judge God's law. No. (laughs) No, me, never. (laughs) Well, God's saying you do this if you speak evil against your brother. And so most likely the implication here is that by choosing to ignore various commands in God's law, especially the primary law, which the, the two primary laws, you remember Jesus taught? Love God and love your neighbor. So if you're ignoring those commands, especially that law of neighbor love, for which James has a very deep concern, then you're putting yourself into a position of deciding which of them we really think ought to be obeyed. You're choosing what should be obeyed instead of God choosing for you. Are you allowing the law to shape your life? Or are you trying to shape God, (laughs) become your own God? That kind of a person, James says, is setting himself outside and above the law. Not a good place to be. There's a second reason to not speak evil against your fellow Christians. Look at this. Speaking evil usurps God's role as sole judge by placing believers in this position of judging God's law instead of obeying it. Did you notice verse 12? says there is only one lawgiver and judge. And the implication is, by the way, it's not me and it's not you. <laughs> I'm not the lawgiver, I am not the judge, and neither are you. Notice what it goes on to say, that he who is able to save and to destroy, well, that's only God. I'm not able to do that. That's why James says, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you? Who are you? And so James' rationale for not judging is stemming from the very character of God here. And so by setting oneself up, uh, oneself up as having the right to decide which ought, laws ought and ought not to be obeyed, you, uh, your sin of speech is disclosing a greater problem going on inside you. It's usurping God's role. And it's in direct opposition to the, to the first commandment and in parallel with the, the original fall of Adam and Eve, Genesis 3. Friends, God is the one who establishes what is right. Notice He calls Himself the lawgiver there. And what else does He call Himself? He calls Himself the judge. He, he has, He's making the laws... And he's the one who's punishing the wrongdoer. He has that right and ability. So usurping his judging authority uh, by judging a person is really blaspheming God then. Well, I like what one commentator said about verses 11 and 12. I, I quote, James is not prohibiting the proper and necessary discrimination that every Christian should exercise. Nor is he forbidding the right of the community to exclude from its fellowship those it deems to be to be in flagrant disobedience to the standards of the faith. 
James here rebukes jealous, censorious speech by which we condemn others as being wrong in the sight of God, an assessment that only God can make, end quote. So read Matthew 18, by the way, in case you're wondering. Jesus says you're, you're to be a judge in that sense. Look at the fruit. But friends, here's the proposition. Right? God wants you to forsake worldliness and submit to Him. If you don't do that, you'll never be a mature Christian. You never will. Right? If you're not forsaking worldliness, then how can you be conformed into the image of Christ? If you're phileoing, phileoing, if you will, loving this world, this cosmos, how can you even know God's will? Right? First John 2 said, don't love the world, don't phileo the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Ooh. Friends, we need to understand that command. So, Forsake the worldliness, but you need to turn to God in the process. Submit to Him. Have you ranked yourself under God? That's the key to Christian maturity. How are you doing? God can enable you this to take place in your life. He can give you the grace. But remember, if you're proud, He's going to resist you. He's going to oppose you. It's not going to happen if you're proud. May God... Make us humble people so that we can forsake worldliness and submit to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we understand what's causing the quarrels and what's causing the fights among us. May we understand what Scripture's talking about here. We're, we're thankful that Your Word is like that double-edged sword that Hebrews talks about that pierces even into our souls and our spirits and can divide. Show us what's really going on, because our hearts are deceptive, and they are desperately wicked. Who can know them? Well, you, you know them. And so we ask that you would do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Show us who we really are. May we not be deceived by ourselves. May we understand the warning here against worldliness and just how, how deadly it is and destructive it can be. May, may our local church not be involved with these fights and quarrels and wars as uh, was, was happening in, in James' day. So protect us from our own passions that are at war within us. May we understand where this is all coming from and, and be protected. Deliver us from evil. Deliver us from ourselves and our own these temptations of, from the world and Satan and our own indwelling sin. Enable us to, to be humble as we see that pride is, is kind of the basics of, of all sin. It is so deadly and so destructive and so horrible. May we see it for what it is. Deliver us from that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.